after we're done with in Acts, which will be uh, oh, September, um, you know, I'll be going into topical series. So it doesn't really matter whether you're doing topical or or through books. I I, I like to do both, but the purpose is to um, it's not to impart information. Information does come out of things, but it's it's really to make it relevant for us. What does it mean? the scriptures alive you know we saying about Jesus being living water you know what is how what about the living word of God what about scripture being part of our lives how can it relate to me because you know there's there's um there's lots of churches that that teach I mean there's lots of places that will um you know teach what's pleasing to the ear you know tickle the ear please tell me what I want to hear kind of thing or there's others that that really feed the mind feed the intellect and um, I don't prefer to do that because I know that that's not the way God speaks to us. God doesn't tell us things we want to hear, by the way. I don't know if you never knew that. He, he, and he certainly does not just talk to us intellectually as if that's that important to him. He wants to change us, right? He speaks to us to bring change in our lives. And so I think, okay, that's, that's God, and Jesus is the Word, and he's, when he communicates to us... It's to affect change in our lives, period. That's what he does. Fashion us in the image of his son, whatever it takes. Um, and so I feel, well, this is his word. This is his written word. So therefore, I'm a, I, we should approach it in the same fashion that I'm going to read this to where, how can this change me? What, what can this mean to me? And so... That's like a little free intro. Anyway, we're in Acts chapter 15. The God of reconciliation, do you know that's what he is? He is the God of reconciliation. And so in, in, um, before we get to that particular section, I wanna, we, we need to cover the chapter, and it's Acts 15.1. It says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and, they were, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That is really strong words, don't you think? You cannot be saved. They were determining. These Jewish believers... Converted Jews, they were teaching actually who can be saved and who can't. And then keep in mind, this is several years after the church's existence, and despite the incredible impact the church was having all over the known region, many of the Jewish Christians were still having difficulty with the admission of Gentiles into the church of Jesus because it was a giant step for them. It was a giant step. It was a new way of, of thinking. And it's not that they were denying the possibility of Gentiles being saved. They were open to that. It was their insistence that they had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had, gone, had, God had done through them. Now, many years later, not during this time, but many years later, the apostle Paul was still dealing with the same issue about circumcision. 
But at this point, what he decided to do is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to bring it to the leaders in Jerusalem. I'm going to bring it to the elders of the church. And I think it demonstrated his true heart of uh, submission to authority. And a primary fruit of submission to authority is unity. Paul's focus was always about unity. We find that in all his writings. We find it in his life throughout the book of Acts. See, because Paul could have stopped this divisive act at any time by defeating them intellectually and logically and scripturally. I mean, how would you have ever liked to have gone against somebody like the Apostle Paul when you're dealing with Scripture? <laughs> There's no way. Well, they could have defeated them. There's no chance. But what would have happened as a result of Paul going after them scripturally, logically, intellectually, is probably there would have been this complete separation in the churches at that region. And Paul was trying to bring everybody together. So Paul humbled himself. And Paul is a brilliant man. And, and a man of stature, respected by this time. And so he... he, he chose his path of humility where he took the issue to the leaders in Jerusalem and reported everything that God was doing with him throughout the region. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So now these are believers. These had been part of the, the, the who, who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So they were just like Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee. And they'd been converted to Jesus. So the problem was that even though they believed Jesus was the Messiah now, they, they also still considered him as the king of Israel. And, and so this kingdom that Jesus was establishing, the Gentiles would, unless they were circumcised, unless they accepted the laws of Moses, they would be excluded from that kingdom. So they believed the only way into covenant uh, blessing was through the covenantal act of circumcision. Because if you remember, God established that with Abraham. And so they, they believed that, that there was two classes of people. Two classes of people. And it was circumcised and uncircumcised. That's it. Okay? And like black and white and brown and all. You know, circumcised, uncircumcised. That's it. And so the, uh, they, they taught that because these uncircumcised Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, whom they believed in, that's not good enough because you're still uncircumcised. You're still in this other class of people. You've got to become like us. You have to be in our class in order. So here we go. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Because remember, they're all Jews at this point, so being they're really they're really coming to like, what does this mean to us? What are the ramifications? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed him. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe God. That was at the house of Cornelius, you remember, in chapter 10. God, who knows the heart, showed what he, that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that we nor our fathers have ever been able to, uh, have, have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved just as they are. So he, Peter brings this to the table that, hey, it's the cleansing of the heart that matters to God. It's, it's, um, 
because it's not these keeping of outward, you know, legal circumstances. He calls circumcision and an oppressive yoke that nobody been able to bear. This trying to keep all of the law. So in other words, it's not circumcision that brings us into right relationship with God. It's always been grace. It's always been His grace. Even in the Old Testament, it was always the grace of God that brought, brought people you know, to the Lord and then trusting in the Lord. What's that? What do we call that? Faith. So it's always been the same thing. It's always been God takes the initiative through His grace and we respond uh, through faith. And... and, and um, and so the, 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 what, what happens is Jew and Gentile, both of them, are saved by faith, not by any kind of allegiance or obedience to the law. And even today, after all these years, the, there are some that will still draw a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, between the church and Israel. Um, and the Apostle Paul is very clear when he said there is no distinction. He just said that. Both he and Paul would later teach, actually, that, that God has brought both these people groups together as one person. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, James, leader of the church. Brother, uh, brother of Jesus, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After I will rebuild, a return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should make it difficult for the Gentiles, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled by, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses had been priest in every city, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So, you know, we, we just read that prior to James speaking, Peter had shared about his own spirit of God, his own experience of God pouring out his spirit upon the Gentiles. And then Paul and Barnabas shared about their experiences where God was doing incredible signs and wonders among them. But now James turns to Scripture and he brings the final word. And let me say something about that little order that I just mentioned. Sometimes believers get locked into their own interpretation of Scripture. Did you know? <laughs> and they get so locked in their own interpretation that they will actually reject things that God himself are doing. What they often say is that they are Scripture-oriented and the others are experience-oriented, you see. The, the, issue, the truth of the matter is their interpretations, are often, they often come from their lack of experience. So that's still experience-based. And so what the Lord often does is He allows His children to experience things first and then reveal the reality of those things in Scripture. Now, that's been abused over the years. I mean, we, people have come up with, the, they experience the craziest things and then look for a verse or two that will justify their behavior. And far too many theologies have been created like that. 
But things like this, abuse and what people do with truth, nevertheless, or principles, does not negate the fact that God will often move first in the areas of experience before the revelation of the truth. And the reason he works this way, I think, is because truth is much more than intellectual discovery. Think about it. Truth is much more than intellectual discovery. Truth involves discovering the reality of something that is much more real than merely having an intellectual understanding about something. So in that sense, we cannot really know truth until we experience it. In other words, were you able to understand God prior to experiencing Him? Were you able to understand such things as salvation, you know, what Jesus did on the cross, or, or forgiveness, the, the complete picture, prior to experiencing them? And so one of the greatest examples, see, is found here in the book of Acts. We know from the, the Old Testament prophecies that the inclusion of the, the Gentiles, that old, the Old Testament prophets foretold of this time. But nobody understood these scriptures until the Lord caused the Gentiles to experience these things, these promises, you see? They never got it. Even Peter, even James, none of, none of them got it. So it's not just the Pharisees, the religious leaders. It was the converted. They didn't get it yet. So first came the experience and then the understanding. Peter had to have three visions, if you remember. The Lord basically rebuking him because he didn't get it. And so first came the experience, then the, then the understanding, and even though some object to that method because it's been abused over the years, the Lord often does this over and over and over again, which is precisely the reason we have to be open to being wrong about some of the things we believe, particularly in areas that we have not experienced, you see, such as speaking in tongues or miraculous healing. We haven't experienced speaking in tongues. How can we judge it? How can we make, have an opinion about it? We've never experienced it before. If you've, never, if you've never been part of a miraculous healing, how can you say that God doesn't heal? I mean, how can you? How, we don't have any experience with these things. So we're arguing only on an intellectual understanding of Scripture, of how we view Scripture, but we haven't experienced Scripture. Now, it's very important... Um, what James does here, he's quoting God, <laughs> the Bible, the Old Testament, and he says, where, where the Lord says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. And then David's fallen tent is David's tabernacle, the tabernacle of David. Now, this, now when, when David, do, remember when the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, maybe you don't, but anyway, it was captured by the Philistines and, you know, all these kind of stuff were going, going on. The Ark was going to this city and all these people were dying. Everything's going on. And it's like, wow, we don't want it. Send it to that city. And all these people are dying. Nobody wants this Ark anymore because it's like, they, you know, they're afraid. It's like cursed to them. Well, of course, it's the presence of the Lord. They're not supposed to have it, the enemy. And, I mean, and, and, and so finally David gets it. He's bringing it back to Jerusalem, and he doesn't go back to take it to where it belonged. He does not take the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle of Moses. The tabernacle of Moses was in Jerusalem. That's where you think he would have brought it, but he didn't. He instead took it to Mount Zion, which is about five miles away from uh, the tabernacle of Moses. And here's the key. Both tabernacles 
tabernacle of Moses, and then David established the tabernacle of David. Both of them remained into, in existence together about five miles away for about 40 years, David's reign, about that period of time. The tabernacle of Moses represents having a relationship with God through the old covenant, through the law of Moses, through the establishment of, you know, the old old part, the Old Testament, basically. Well, David prophetically represents the relationship with God through the new covenant, which was brought by who? Jesus, all those years later. What's simply amazing, however, is that during this time, God even provided a priest to serve in the tabernacle of Moses, a priest by the name of Zadok, who had the responsibility of overseeing all the uh, you know, things that went on in, in, in the, all the religious activities in the Old Covenant. In other words, God actually provided a way for his people to still remain in tradition and stay under the law. Amazing. His grace is amazing. And we should understand something else important here. The tabernacle of David was completely, quote-unquote, illegal. It was contrary to the law of Moses. In the tabernacle of David, there was no holy place. There was no holy of holies. There were no tapestries, no bells, no incense, no offerings, no sacrifice for sin, no priests. It was simple. And it was plain. So when you walked through the tabernacle of David, when you walked in, there stood before you the very ark of God. Whoa. Only priests got in that far. This is entirely different than the tabernacle of Moses with all the rules and regulations and all that. God was allowing something new to take place through David. And and but consider that that's what he's always wanted. You know, he, he's always wanted, uh, you know, free, people to have free access uh, to his throne. It's, it's like God didn't keep his people away from him. The people kept God away. God appears on a mountain. They said, Moses, you go talk. We don't want to deal with this God. That people were always pushing God away. God, that's not God's heart. He's always wanted to walk in the garden with us and be with us. And so David comes as this forerunner of a new covenant long before the new covenant uh, comes into existence. And he establishes this new form of worship to the Lord. Much of the book of Psalms was written during this time. David and Asaph wrote about 80% of the Psalms, and many of them were written during this time, during the time of David's tabernacle. So contained in the Psalms is New Testament or New Covenant theology. That's why we write a lot of songs from the book of Psalms, because it's New Covenant theology. And there exists this promise after promise in the Psalms about Zion, the center of worship, the center of praise, the center of the presence of God. And it was a foretaste of what was to come, Zion is, uh, when Jesus brought the new covenant, which was ushered in at his death, when the, and, and upon his death, the huge curtain was torn in the temple from the top to the bottom, which signified a dramatic, it was a dramatic statement of the arrival of the new covenant. And here's another amazing thing. David broke every law of the tabernacle and God blessed him. You know, I think all those years later, so now we have James, 
He's quoting from Amos chapter 9. But I think that they, I think as Peter shared and as Paul and Barnabas shared, James, as the head of the church, had revelation from the Lord in concerning this thing. And I think basically he was saying, you know what, brothers, this thing is happening again. I mean, so, something that seems illegal to us, God is blessing. These very people that we have despised all these years are coming into the freedom of David. See, that's what he's doing. And he's, he's talking about David's tabernacle. He's saying it's happening again. And so the, he's saying these new Gentiles, therefore, they don't have to be circumcised to obey all the law of Moses. God is receiving them. He's blessing them the way, same way he blessed David. And they're not under the law of Moses because Jesus has come. He broke down that middle wall of separation, and he's bringing new freedom to everyone in the name of the Lord. And then Paul writes later that God, this is in Ephesians, that God destroyed the dividing wall, that was the dividing wall in the temple between Jews and Gentiles. That's the language Paul is using. He destroyed it, the dividing wall of hostility. And, and, there, and he also wrote that there's no difference between Jew or Gentile in Christ Jesus. And then the Bible in Hebrews 12 says, we are not to come to Mount Sinai anymore. This is interesting. But to Mount Zion. Sinai, Old Covenant. Zion, New Covenant. Verse 24 of Hebrews says, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so there's some believers that have not found full freedom in Jesus because they keep trying to go back to Mount Sinai. You know, what are we missing? Maybe there's more we can do to please God. Maybe there's something that we need to become in order for God to accept us. But Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, that's what Jesus said. If you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, Jesus said, and you, the truth will set you free. So we know that one. You'll know the truth, and your truth will set you free. But that's what he said before that. If you hold on my teaching, you're going to be my disciples. Okay? Verse 22 to 29. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers, with them. They sent uh, the following letter to the apostles and elders, your uh, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and uh, Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not only to, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And so... All of the legalistic requirements that the Jewish believers were trying to cram down the throat of Gentiles, basically this letter said that was unauthorized. We didn't authorize this stuff, okay? And they saw, according to the letter and according to the things that Peter said, they saw the utter burden that legalism was placing on these new converts, so they wanted to lift that burden off of them in this really short letter. 
And the four requirements here are not in the spirit of legalism, by the way. In other words, these were not necessary. They weren't saying this, you do these things, and then you can be saved. They're not, this is not necessary for salvation. And so what they were doing is that basically saying, um, um, if, you can do, if you can live by these things, Gentiles, it's going to be a, make it a lot easier for Jews and Gentiles to worship together. So again, the focus is on unity. If you could just do the, in other words, if you could just compromise a little bit and do these things, it would be great because then we could have fellowship together. It's not going to be offensive to the Jews. And I love the phrase that seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Do you see our part in this deal? We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit, but uh, we can also use our God-given wisdom and decision-making when, when, you know, when we have things to do. We don't have to check our brains out, out the door we, when we're faced with options. The apostles here were faced with a major decision. You've got to understand the, the ramifications of this in the sense that this would affect thousands of believers in that day and actually millions upon millions today. That's how big this decision brought down by James under the advisement of the other elders and leaders brought. And it was clear that the Holy Spirit spoke to these leaders, but I think God allowed them to participate in the process by allowing them to get a sense of peace about it. You know, Lord, Lord doesn't look for blind robots. You know, he, he, I mean, we can't do anything apart from him. Jesus said that. But he wants us to participate in the process so that we can build a, a deeper relationship as we learn and grow from him. I mean, if you have small children, um, you can easily make all the decisions for them. You can do everything for them. But don't you find like, <clears throat> you know, they're three, four, five, six years old or whatever, you know, the fun years, um, pre-teenage years. Anyway, <laughs> we, we, you, you, don't you find that when you allow them to participate, and you'll find this out, Justin, in the process, allow them to participate in the process, it's so much more rewarding and enjoyable when they're part of that. And in addition, it is the best way for them to know and discover how you make decisions. So if they're involved with you in that process... And most importantly, and that's what happens when your kids get older and they're involved in decision-making with you, they see how you make decisions. And so, most importantly, it creates a, a deeper and intimate relationships with, relationship when you process things, things, process things together. And that's one of the reasons why I think it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I think they were in sync because... The, um, I believe that the Holy, Holy Spirit prefers us being involved with Him, where we're processing things together because it helps mature us. It helps us become more intimate with Him in the process. He's in, God is a relational God. And so when we ask Him for direction, when we ask Him when we're in the midst of decision-making, He, boom, He could give us the answer, and aren't you frustrated when He doesn't? All the time. Why don't you speak? Why don't you tell me what to do? Ah, he's just trying to draw you into a more deeper relationship. That's all. Okay. All right. <laughs> Verse 35. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. 
Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of grace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. And so the reason this was such an encouraging letter was because finally the Jewish believers were embracing Gentiles as brothers in Christ, not asking them to be circumcised, not requiring them to follow the law of Moses. And so it was a monumental decision that furthered unity within the body of Christ. And then it laid this foundation for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, you know, for the years to come with the Gentiles. And then finally, we come to the, the last part, 3641. Sometime later, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, uh, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in, in Paf, um, Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through uh, Syria and uh, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is an intriguing passage because I love how the Lord directs the writers of the Bible to include issues and not just victories, you know. We got some problems. There's some relational problems going on here. And so here, here <clears throat> you're in the midst of the greatest revival in the history of mankind, uh, you know, um, at that point, and yet two apostles were in such sharp disagreement. I mean, John Mark was not an apostle. I mean, Paul and Barnabas. Such sharp disagreement that they parted company. And the Bible doesn't tell us who's right or wrong, does it? You want to think Paul is, because he's kind of like, you know, hmm, way up there. But Barnabas not too shabby. Barnabas is the one who got Paul in this ministry, uh, you know, with the, with the other apostles. And so we can see that I think the Lord used this disagreement for his own purpose. And here's why. Instead of one missionary team, there's now two. The Lord just doubled his missionary efforts around the world. <laughs> I, I just love how God do, does that. And also, by the way, the, this breach between Paul and John Mark was completely restored later because Paul affectionately refers to him in Colossians and then asks him to be with him when he wrote to Timothy and wanted John Mark to be with him. So, you know, um, and that was near the end of his life, 2 Timothy. So, you know, the, it was restored, which is good news. But don't you just love that God, that God can take our mistakes? Have you ever made a mistake, by the way? Okay. That God can take our mistakes and, and make them into a blessing. Again, it doesn't say who is wrong or who made the mistake, how this was done. That's not the focus. And so oftentimes we make mistakes, and what do we do? We live in regret. We live in disappointment. We think we're idiots. You know, we just, and, and we just get down and beat up ourselves. And God says, let me take what the enemy thought he could do wrong to you, what other people thought they could do wrong for you, or you just being an idiot. Let me just show you my glory in it. Let me just show you how I can do some things in this. And so that's what I like about God. And, and, but the thing is, here's the, here's the reality. The Bible doesn't take sides, but somebody had to be wrong here. I mean, come on, somebody was wrong. I mean, have you ever... 
Of course, you have made a mistake in trying to serve God. Have you ever done something that, let me ask you a different, Willie. Have you ever done something that you just thought had to be God, but later you found out was wrong? None of you guys? I mean, you were certain it was the Lord, but it wasn't, apparently. Or maybe it was the wrong time. But, you know, that's how we justify things. But why not just admit it? Okay. You thought it was God and it wasn't. Or have you ever thought poorly of someone only to discover later that you're wrong about them? Okay. Isn't it great to know that God can take our very mistakes and cause the impact of his ministry to double? It's amazing what he can do. However, and this is the key, we must cultivate reconciliatory hearts if we're going to get anywhere. Hey, Paul and Barnabas had the breach in their relationship, but it was reconciled. God himself is reconciliatory. And the Bible tells us that in, in 2 Corinthians that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And so it doesn't matter often who's right or wrong, because after all, when it comes to us and God, think about this, when it comes to God, uh, who, who, who is in the wrong between us and God? <laughs> okay. And yet the Lord reached out anyway and reconciled us because that's who he is. He's the one that took the initiative. And that is the heart he wants us to have. After all, we pray for God's heart. Well, what is his heart? Reconciliation. Let's stand. That was a little abrupt. <clears throat> anyway, I got excited. But um, a couple of things I, that, uh, okay, here's the thing. Here's the deal. Here's what happens when, when I go through teaching. I'm just telling you how this works for me. You know, I'll go through a passage like that and, and you know, get it prepared and everything like that. And then it's like, Lord, what do you want? to do with this? What do you want to say? And, it's, you know, it's going to be based on, typically, unless the Lord gives me something during worship or during the message, it's going to be kind of based on the teaching, okay? But based upon what I shared at the beginning, that this is all about you connecting with the, the, with the living Word of God um, and, and, and the written Word of God to where it makes it alive in your life. So how is it applying to your life? So God, you know... Um, uh, he may have been talking to you. I'm talking about reconciliation. I'm talking about decision-making because those are the two things in context right now. He may be talking to you about something completely different, and we want to pray for you for that. But the two areas that I felt that the Lord would want to minister today um, and... Uh, and that's if, if you're in a place where you're in a decision-making process and you're struggling between making the decision on your own or waiting for the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to pray for that process, that balance of what do, what do, how do I do this? Do I do a, a, a piece of paper and write pros and cons? Do I wait for the leading of the Holy Spirit? What am I supposed to do here in this significant decision-making process? And then the second area is, is if you've had a, a breach in a relationship where you're convinced that you're right and the other person's wrong, which is pretty typical. And actually, the situation is where the last thing you really want 
is reconciliation. Have you ever had a re- people like that where there's a breach, but you really don't want reconciliation? You prefer not to have reconciliation? Well, it takes two parties to reconcile, okay? So that's a whole different dynamic. But what we want to pray for you is to receive the Father's heart in the matter, what he would want to do with you in the situation.